come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode seven, How Deborah Landau Writes. And yes, I am fighting off a cold. This episode is sponsored by me. Yes, How Writers Write is sponsoring How Writers Write, like an Inception-style sponsorship. This Monday, I will be launching the first online training course by How Writers Write, and it's designed to help you set writing goals. Think about the superpower you'll have when you can set your sights on any writing goal and have a step-by-step guide to help you achieve it. It's a perfect companion for kicking off 2020 with a bang. To register, visit www.howwriterswrite.com slash goals. If you use the coupon code podcast, you'll get $10 off through the month of December. It'd be hard for me to imagine someone who sits in a more unique spot in the creative writing world than Deborah Landau. As the director of the NYU Creative Writing Program, Deborah sees an incoming crop of incredibly talented writers as undergrad and MFA students, but she also manages a world-class team of authors as the faculty. In this, Deborah sees the entire spectrum, from those of us who are just starting the writing journey to those further down the path. This perspective is far-reaching and rare, especially combined with the fact that she is an accomplished, awarded, and wonderful poet herself. I'm going to keep this short because my voice is scratchy. I want to say thank you to Deborah for hosting me in her office at the NYU townhouse and carving out time for me in her incredibly busy schedule. Without any further ado, here's the interview with Deborah Landau. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on decoding the tips, tricks, and writing processes of your favorite authors. I am your host, Brian, and I am so excited to welcome Deborah Landau to the show. Deborah is a complete force of nature. She is the author of four books of poetry, including The Uses of the Body and Soft Targets. Deborah's work has appeared in The New Yorker, The American Poetry, The Paris Review, and The New York Times, among many, many others. Deborah has also won many awards, including in 2016, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Deborah teaches and directs New York University's creative writing program that is both the MFA and undergrad programs. She grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, earned her BA from Stanford, MA from Columbia, and PhD in American and English Literature from Brown. Dear God. Deborah lives in Brooklyn with her family. On a personal note, Deborah is a wonderful human being. She cares deeply about teaching and inspiring writers to tell their story. I am so happy to have you on the show today. Deborah, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. So I know there are a lot of people out there listening to this who have a full-time job and they have a family and a social life, and maybe they have some basic personal needs like eating and <laughs> sleeping, and they want to enjoy their life a little bit. And when some people hear the bio I just read, they wonder like, WTF, like how in the <laughs> world does she do it? How does she pull all of this off? And I think a great place to start would just to, I want to pull apart a little bit. Like what are the big blocks of your life and like when and, and how does writing fit into those? 
okay, I have three kids, two dogs, and a husband, and a job. So <laughs> it's busy. Poems are short. <laughs> they fit into the interstices. You can, you know, do an hour in the morning, and you're pretty much good, good to go. I'm joking, but discipline, routine, clearing a space on your calendar for the writing and not violating that space. So for me, it's in the morning after I get my daughter to school before I come here to NYU. But the main thing is to really protect that time. Don't schedule a dentist appointment. Don't talk to your friend on the phone. Get off of the internet. Don't go on Twitter, whatever it is. Like Guard that space. And I think if you do that day after day after day after day, eventually you have a book and then another book. How exactly do you guard that space? Because we all live in a world where there's Instagram <laughs> and Twitter. And I just, I mean, I'm going to like sound super old, but I just downloaded TikTok for the first time. And my mind was just blown how addictive it was. What is your process like to, to carve out that hour or however long you have during your day? I think you just have to really want to do it, right? Because there's always other things. So obviously if I have to meet with the dean. I'm coming to the meet with the dean during that time. So there are certain things where you you can't manage it that day, but it's just a priority. It's you have to be strict with yourself. And then it's a routine. You just get in the habit of it. And then it's so gratifying. So it doesn't really take that much self-control in the end because it's something you want to do, right? Right. How much time per day do you think you spend writing? It depends on the time in my life. Since my book came out, not as much because I've been doing a lot of traveling. And then when I'm not traveling, I have to catch up like around here with students and with my family if I've been uh, remiss on that front. But I try for, and again, it's poetry. So even an hour a day, every single day is a lot for poetry. Two hours is better. And then in the final stages of finishing a book, it can be eight hours, like you know, sometimes in Paris when I've been finishing something up, it's great to shut yourself in, inside all day long and just focus. Right. One thing that stood out to me as I was kind of thinking about your life and doing background research on you is you have a lot of very defined roles. So like we're both parents and it's like as a parent, that's a defined role. Like when you are parenting, it's hard to think about anything other than the needs of the little people <laughs> in true. front of you, right? You know, in your, in your, you know, work at NYU, right? Like it's, you know, you are fully present there. And I wondered if you have a way to transition from, I, um, you just said, you know, I drop the kids off and then I sit down and I have a very short period of time. Do you have a way to transition from that role to be fully present in your writing and not have like lingering, like I'm thinking about something at work or I'm thinking about something my daughter needs for yeah. school. Well, I mean, obviously if there's something that she needs, she needs it and right. I have to take care of that. Or if there's something I really am late on for work, I have to manage that first. But assuming all the urgent things, the compulsory things are out of the way, coffee, my desk, my living room, music, reading sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I mean, I it's not we're lucky, right? right? Like, I don't think it's some torture at all. I'm happy that I get to do that. That's the best part. Yeah. What do you like? What are you listening to right now? Um, like, do you have a specific music like per book or do you just... It depends on my mood and what the material is. The uses of the body. It was Lana Del Rey. Um, oh, that's amazing. The last... A specific song of hers or like album or... Um, I mean, I told, not knowing that, that book of poetry and now yeah, hearing yeah. that, like, that's such, <laughs> such an amazing combo. Yeah. And then this last book, a lot of, um, what's his name? 
you're going to edit this part out. Yeah. Richter is his last name. Oh, oh just... the Max Richter. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. Yeah. That was good for yeah. just blank, you know, blank mind. Blank, yeah. 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 There's like enough going on in the music without it feeling like overpowering. Yeah. Yeah. It sets up an atmosphere and you can work within it. So let's rewind a little bit in your life. Do you remember when you first started to write? Way, way back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, way, of course, like a kid, right? Yeah. Like little. Yeah. What What are those first memories you um, have as a kid writing? If you want to know the honest truth, yeah. my first memory is writing some like little haiku like poems for school and having the teacher say, You didn't write these. Like, who wrote these? Yeah. Because the teacher was impressed. She thought that, yeah. I was, wow. I, I mean, not that I was so great. I wasn't, right. but like for whatever age kid, I remember that. And then, of course, writing in diary. How old were you when you wrote that haiku? You know, I think really young, like like our daughter's age is probably wow. like seven or eight. I mean, I, just, I remember that. And then I remember just writing in my diary, writing lots of like really bad, like love, love, poems. <laughs> you know, like everyone does, yeah. right? Sappy. I was bad. It, they were bad. They're bad. Right. They're bad for a long time until you read a lot, right? Until, right. You, wanna, until you know what a poem is, they're bad. Right. And even then they're bad <laughs> for, a, for a while. <laughs> you have a lot to learn. Right. What was the process like between like these first memories of writing haikus at age seven <laughs> or eight or whatever to you start to think like writing is something I want to do more seriously? Oh, so my whole life was about poetry seriously from forever. I didn't know I could write it. I wanted to wow. write it. I wanted to read it. I was reading it all through high school. I mean, I always tell the story, but my mother gave me Anne Sexton's love poems when I turned 13. And I was like, wow, like, this is my thing. I read, 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 read. I read through college. Seriously. I wrote too, but I read, I read through graduate school. And when I finished my PhD, I thought, okay, now I don't want to do that thing to poems that you have to do as a literary critic or English professor. I just want to write my own poems. I'd been writing all along, but then I really seriously started writing. And what, what was the thing? Like, what, what didn't you want to do? Like rip them apart, like tear, like break oh, yeah. them up. It's horrible. Yeah. What you have to do as a critic, as With, a literary I mean, critic, not, they're is great that, is that critics. They're right. great critics who write for like the New Yorker or whatever. Right. There's lots of people writing about poetry who are brilliant. What was it as a child? Do you think really drew you to poetry? What did it do to you to like capture your attention so much? Cause I think of myself as a, as a kid and I, I didn't come to books and literature until I was an adult. Cause I was just in no way like mature enough mm -hmm, to, mm -hmm. to find and, and really be absorbed with it. And as you know, at, at such a young age to be so captivated by it, like, oh, can you look back and I identify think, um, what it was? I think that the poems cut to the quick of what it is to be alive in a body. And I've never been good at like denial or chit chat. Like I, mm -hmm. I want it. That's where I live in that place. And so to feel deeply connected inner life to inner life to other people through poems, that just felt like sustenance. Wow. Yeah. And the music of it, the yeah. language of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just kind of, it just it really made me think what you said. Like, it's just such a, like a poetry specifically. I don't know if you get that same thing from novels. Some, as you do. Much, I, you sometimes. Do. I mean, but for me, I, mean, I could never write a novel. <laughs> I could never, I'm not a storyteller. Right. And sometimes I love to read novels, but sometimes really plot head. I'm not as interested in a, in a story. I'm more interested in the people in the stories. Yeah. So your mom gave you a poetry book at age 13. Were you raised in a literary family? Um, she was a philosophy professor. So oh, okay. she was super intellectual and she read a lot. So okay. yeah, my dad, not so much. 
Okay. Well, kind of like what was her like philosophical? Oh, political okay. philosophy, participatory democracy. But she read a lot of poetry. She was in a reading group with other faculty members. So there were, there were books all over our house. It's <clears> amazing. <throat> Is there any, are, are there any, I mean, coming from like that philosophical like background, are there any other books during that time frame that like stand out to you? <laughs> I, mean, I read constantly. I don't, I mean, you mean books of philosophy? Yeah. Like I, I any of her she... like philosophical books that you were like, oh man, this really is like. I don't think she, sh- I mean, she shared a lot of poetry with me. I don't remember. And feminist books like Adrienne Rich, yeah. the essays of Adrienne Rich, things like that. But she didn't like, I didn't read philosophy until I got to college yeah. so much. I mean, she would talk to me about it. Like she would tell me stories about Plato and things, yeah. but I wasn't, maybe I was reading it in high school, but she wasn't giving me like. Kant or something, right. you know, she didn't give me that for my birthday. Right. Like, like existential I'm crisis glad, at age 14. That, yeah, I'm glad that that wasn't my birthday present. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love poems that weren't my alley. <laughs> so when you, you know, when you think about the transition, I love transitions. They're always really interesting to me and like people making decisions. Okay. I'm going to go do something else now. When you think about that transition, you know, you had, you know, been captivated by poetry. I've been reading poetry for a long time and got to an inflection point in your life where it was like, I either go be a literary critic or something along those lines, or I do, I think, not to put words in your mouth, it sounds like what, what is closer to my heart, which is to actually yeah. activate and participate in it. Yeah. What was the transition like? Like, like a, how did you go from being someone who studied poetry mm-hmm. and read a lot to someone who writes the poetry, mm-hmm. which is just a whole different set of skills, yeah. you know? I guess, yeah, I mean, I think you learn a lot of those skills from reading. If you really know what a poem is from reading a lot of poems, you have a lot of those. You might not realize it, but you probably do have skills. I had always been putting it off. I used to tell myself, like, Anne Sexton didn't even start writing until she was 28, you know, or 27. And I was way younger than that. So I'm like, I have time. And then I think I did get closer to being 27. And I finished my PhD and I was teaching at the new school. I was teaching literature. And when you teach at the new... I'm pointing because it's over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Two blocks that way. <laughs> and um, when you teach there at the new school, you can take a class for free. Okay. So I was teaching lit and I started taking poetry workshops for free as a student. That's amazing. And I thought like, it will just be, I'll fail. You know, like, this is a joke. But my father said, how's that going to help your career? Like, were you wasting your time? Like he thought I should just be writing my lit crit. And from the very first day of the very first poetry workshop, it was clear that this was going to be what I would do. I mean, from then on, like it was, it, I felt at home. I, there was a lot of momentum. Yeah. And so I started, I just started writing and then I started publishing and then I never stopped. Yeah. Did you, I mean, I was writing before, but just, I thought only for me and then I could never do it myself. Yeah. Did you, um, get any like books or, I mean, outside of a workshop, did you have any other like direction on how to learn to write? Someone just asked me the other day, like, what are some good books about how to write poetry? And I don't even, I mean, I just read and that, that, and then, and then also going to workshop, as you know, (laughs) and having poets talk to you or writers talk to you about writing and then looking at other people's work and having people look at your work, all that, like the process works, the workshop works. So I did learn a lot that way. In the learning process, do you feel like there's like an openness that the poet or or writer um, has to bring to the table? Because I think a lot about writing like your authentic self onto the page instead of like, I feel like I should be writing something. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like there's a, when it comes to poetry, there's just a certain degree of I'm expressing the insides of myself and somehow it comes together? As opposed to what, it not coming together? 
Well, <laughs> as opposed to saying I'm expressing I, I'm gonna, it, but it never come, amounts to anything. Well, or I'm writing something that maybe isn't is not necessarily that close to me. I'm just writing it for some other reason. Oh, I know. I can't. I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's. I think it's probably different with fiction. I think fiction writers are maybe. different. I hope. Not all of your listeners are fiction writers. (laughs) It seems like maybe they will be. But it always comes from a place of inner agitation. Like, you know, whatever you're obsessed with, whatever you're agitated about, whatever Mm -hmm. you're feeling most deeply day to day, that's for me where the poems come. And And it tends to be the same sorts of things over a period of a year or two or three. And then that's the book. Yeah. And then there's another book, which is a, usually something else is going on. Yeah. I actually want to talk about your last book about soft targets. So I've heard you say the book was at least partially inspired by your experience in Paris during some of the yes. attacks. Yeah. And so just just for some background, really quick background. So a few years back, Paris went through a really like chaotic few years. Like, like the, the, it was a really, and, and I mean, e- even recently, but not as I think as you know, immensely violent. And so there's the Charlie Hebdo attacks. And then in November, 2015, there was an awful attack that killed 130 people across different locations in Paris. And then the attack in Nice in July of 2016. So I've heard you say, it's kind of like insider baseball here, (laughs) but I've heard you say you were in Paris during the Charlie Hebdo attacks. And then you and I were in Paris during, for NYU's low residency program on the night of the Nice attack, which was July 16th in 2016. And that day is Bastille Day. So like for Americans, it's like July 4th, right? So that'd be like in America, there's a terrorist attack on Independence Day, right? It was a really traumatic event. And I can remember, so Paris on that night, Paris normally is like a party city. It's Mm -hmm. it's full of life. And it was, you know, it was eerie and it was quiet. And there was like this sense of like imminent danger, almost like anything could happen, you know, like anything at all could happen. And I can very viscerally, I, I can remember those that night. I think you were really calm though. Yeah. I mean, that's like I my- I was not calm. That's my personality. And you had a lot more responsibility than I did. Yes. But what about those nights made you think like, I want to express this and explore this I with poetry? Think, like I don't decide or plot it out. I mean, that's just what comes out when I start writing. That's yeah. That's all there, that's what there is. So that, that then it ends up on the page. But it was really- really scary. Yeah. It was scary during the Hebdo. We um we were trying to have classes. We were trying to have our program there, the low res MFA program that's in Paris that NYU has. And there was the shooting and then there was a manhunt and then there was a kidnapping. Like there was a lot going on in the city. It went on over several days and the sirens were going and the sirens were going and we were trying to have our class. And then um yeah and Nice we were on the boat, right, watching fireworks and this truck had run over what? Like in Nice like how many people died that night? Like many, yeah. dozens. So, yeah, it was an so, awful attack. And then attack. the, the yeah. problem in Paris was people thought the same thing was happening in Paris. I right. don't need to go through this whole thing. So it was scary. And that fear was, I mean, the book, I started writing the book out of that fear. Yeah. Really that the sense of the world, not being able to rely on safety being not um, necessarily something you could count on. Yeah. Like very visceral poems and topics, right? Like when you read both books, you feel them inside of you. There's so much of a body feeling as well as engaging with your mind. But I, I, I've had that like body feeling both times as, as I've read those. And like, what's happening in you as you write these books? Like, do you feel a release as you get this out of you? Like, is it like, I understand this in a different way or does it just kind of exercise something and then 
it feels better. And there's no feeling better ever. (laughs) There's just like, look, at least I made something out of it. Like there's the satisfaction of making something out of pain or making something Mm -hmm. out of one's experiences. I could feel we're lucky because, you know, everyone feels all these things, right? Like pain, fear, love. But we also get to make something out of it so that Mm -hmm. uh, if you're writing. So I feel like that's a pleasure and that's a satisfaction, but I don't get catharsis. I don't ever feel like, oh, I I fixed it somehow. (laughs) Right. Do you feel like those topics come back up for you a lot? I actually thought about this riding on the subway over here. So I was on the C train coming into the city. I live in Brooklyn. We both live in Brooklyn. Like everybody who writes lives in Brooklyn, right? And I was thinking about I was thinking about soft targets and I was like feeling that vulnerability. I know I was feeling that vulnerability, right? I was feeling that vulnerability of like how easy it would be for anything to happen on the subway. And I'm super powerless about it. And I was like, do you feel like once you've written the poems and you published the book that it I feel like I'm never, now I'm safe. No one could hurt. Now, actually, nothing can happen to me on the subway because I wrote the book. <laughs> more, more like, do you emotionally feel better about oh, it? Oh, no, not at all. No. No, not in the least. No. <laughs> if anything, I feel worse. No. <laughs> Why would I feel better? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe some acceptance of the impermanence and oh. like, and like how little control we have of like, oh. you're riding a subway and, and like at yeah. a certain point, you're just like, well, there's nothing I can do. I have to get on yeah. the subway. Well, yeah, I'm not going to not go on the subway. Right. And I was on the D train like a year ago the D, and it goes over the bridge from yeah. Brooklyn. It's a really long, it's like, it's a really long stop mm-hmm. Atlantic to Grand Street. And this guy on the train is super agitated and he starts pacing back and forth saying that he's going to, I'm going to kill all of you. Oh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill your daughter. I'm going to kill your grandmother. I'm going to kill you. And I'll go to jail, but it will be worth it because oh it will feel so good. Like for him, like if he, I, <laughs> and I felt like if maybe he, you didn't know if he had a gun or not. Right. Right. Like he, and, and you take that seriously in New York. Like yeah. that's not like if, like, you know, if you say stuff like that, that's, that's not like a. He was telling us he was going to kill all of us and walking from person to person. And we're trapped in this car and you can't, and like he either has a gun or he doesn't, but I got off at Grand Street. Right. What happened? I I got off the first stop I could and then, you know, it took a few hours to get, it was scary. So yeah. And then all the shootings that keep happening. I mean, this is just kind of the way the world is right now. And in writing soft targets, did you... Was it, was there a, like a perspective or something that you, as you're writing a, a piece of poetry or, or a lyric and you, and you said, you know what, I see something differently now through this writing than I did before. I don't, don't want to be glib in the way I'm answering. Like, I'm just thinking, you know, what is great. The one great thing is feeling like you're not alone with you. Like the best thing is I've been doing a lot of readings. You give a reading and someone comes up afterwards and says, I feel that way. Yeah. That's how I feel. And then you realize like, you know, whatever it is, it's inside of you. And then you put it in language and then it's connects with someone else. And then you're not alone anymore. That is the best part. Yeah. That's the reason. That's what I love about it. Yeah. Okay. So let's switch, switch gears. You are in such a unique position because you see a bunch of new writers learning to write, like getting their training wheels taken off or put on one of the, <laughs> part of the process they're in. But you also, you know, as a director of program, you also manage a very diverse group of writers as faculty. Yeah. And some of those, I mean, some of those are incredibly successful, great people. Um, they all are. Yeah, they all are. I should say they are all incredibly successful. And so as you see, you know, writers come through the NYU program 
people go off into all sorts of different paths. Some people don't write anymore and they kind of dip their toe in it and studied writing and then they go leave college and go into advertising. Some do and keep writing and they go and they become published authors and, you know, working poets or working novelists. And this might be an impossible question to ask or to answer, I should say, but I have to ask it anyways, which is in your experience, kind of sitting in the position where you see people who are, have quote unquote made it, are working authors, and you see people at the very beginning of that as Mm -hmm. students. Is there anything that you see as like a unifying traits or features that students can work on or exhibit that like, I don't want to say give, it it just wind up becoming the fundamentals of what you need to be a working writer. The word is working. (laughs) That's the unifying, that's the common feature of all the, these are people who want to be writing and are willing to work really hard yeah, day after day after day. That's what, you know, you can have all the talent in the world, but if you'd rather just flip through Instagram all day long, you're not going to, it's not going to, you know. Right. How would you frame up to somebody who's maybe early in their writing process and, and don't, they, they maybe don't have a way to understand what working hard practically mm-hmm. means? Like, what does that actually mean to work hard? It means... And I get it's broad, right? Like you can't be prescriptive to the individual, but like if you had to, if you had to say like, here's the 80, 20 rule. Yeah. It means you, you start by taking seriously what it is to, what a novel is or what a story is or what a poem is, whatever, or what a memoir, whatever you're writing yeah. to understand the genre, to study it with a seriousness and ambition by reading the work of other writers first or alongside yourself deeply, broadly. It means keeping the ambition in the work when you go to write your own book, showing up for it every day, being patient. And I think seeing the work as an end in itself, like you're just interested in in writing. You know, you're not after like, if I do this, I'm going to get a prize or something. or I'm going to impress my friends. Like it's no, it's like a, it's a serious ambition that's focused on, on the writing itself. Yeah. That's a point that's actually come up quite a bit as I've been interviewing writers is, and I think it's distinct from people who are early in the writing journey, right? And I speak for myself as someone who's early in the writing journey, right? Like I'm putting myself in that camp, which is, I think there's always like a, if then ism in the writing process. So if I get my book done, or if I get an agent, or if I get it published, or if, 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 like there's so many ifs, then I will finally, I don't want to say take joy, but have some level of like, maybe joy is the right word, joy in the work. And one thing I've heard a lot is like, that's reversed, right? You take joy in the work and, and if the ifs happen, great. Yeah. Yep. How would you add, like, like yeah. how, how would mean, you talk I've, to that? Yeah. Here we are in my office. I've talked to some of the most acclaimed writers in the world. Right. And one thing that's clear for me, to me is that the external stuff is never enough for anybody. You know, you've won the National Book Critics Circle, but not the National Book Award. You've won the Pulitzer, but not the Nobel. Like whatever it is, there's another thing, right? So no one ever gets enough of that stuff. It has to be that the writing is an end in itself. It's just a way of moving through the world. Yeah. Writing. And then you get lucky sometimes. Some people get luckier than others. But <laughs> yeah, it's never you're never gonna like reach some point where you feel like I don't think. I mean, I don't think. I mean, where you feel like you've done it all or something. Right. I mean, like, I, I don't know that as much in the writing world. I know that like coming from the business world, I know that <laughs> I've known people who have been wildly successful and have made all the money they would ever need. And yet they still 
feel like they want yeah, that's a trap more right? that's right. somehow yeah desire it's right. a trap but uh i think it was richard wright called writing a significant kind of living a meaningful kind of living in it you know that it's just mm-hmm. a way of making sense of experience what it is to be a, in a body a body that's going to die right. on this planet which is such a fraught place you yeah know, that's what it is i think um there's one of those ifs that writers look at and i i've looked at i've i've been in this this spot is looking at an mfa program as like the necessary step to being a working writer and from your perspective if somebody is thinking about like should i pursue an mfa or shouldn't i pursue an mfa like what are the couple tips you would give somebody yeah. of like why they should or shouldn't and even like if you could go a step further like what are the things you think you can learn in an mfa and then what are the things you maybe can't learn in an mfa there's two questions yeah, in there. Yeah, <laughs> no, I get these questions all the time. So it's a similar, I answer it in a similar way to the question about that you just asked me, which is that an MFA is not a means to an end. Like it's not like getting a degree as a doctor or a, a lawyer where you're going to get a job afterwards and you know you need this credential. You don't really need the credential at all, right? The MFA is not really use, worth anything as a degree. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that as the head what? of the, well, I mean, in itself, right? I mean, like it doesn't guarantee you a job. It's the terminal degree for writers. So some colleges and universities will require it. But I always say like, Jonathan Lethem didn't even finish college. And, but we didn't care. We, we hired him to teach graduate students because he'd written Motherless Brooklyn. So it's not about getting, the MFA will not get you a job. It won't bring you any money. It's it's not, that part of it is not a reason to go to school. I think the MFA is a wonderful way to put aside two years of your life and say, I want to I want to take my writing seriously. I want to read a lot of books. I want to talk with people about books. I want to write my own book. And the the program will give you that time, that opportunity. It will give you access to mentors. That's the best reason to do an MFA. And our faculty are extraordinary. So if you come here, you can study with Zadie Smith, Nathan England, or Jonathan Saffron Ford. I mean, we have, I can go on and on and on. Like I look on our website, but we have, you know, that, that is the reason to get an MFA is to, is to be able to learn from those writers. And then also the, the literary friendships you make, in, as you know, I can, take, you know, I can yeah. speak to that one. Yeah. And those will support you for the rest of your life Yeah, to have kindred spirits with whom you can share work. Yeah. I mean, being somebody, I know it sounds like I'm plugging the MFA program in general, and but being somebody who went through the NYU MFA program, some of my dear, dear writing friends came out from that program with me. I mean, that was one of my main motivations was to just find a group of writers right. I could grow with. And you then know? you can continue to exchange work right. with those people yep. and yep. support each other. And, and that's that's happened as well, which is really cool. Okay. So to round out the podcast, I always ask our guest, three final questions. And I want to ask those three questions to you. So let's do it. Okay. Question number one, is there a specific tool? So pencil, software, chair, you have to sit in. I had somebody say a keyboard that you absolutely must have to write. Coffee. Coffee. That, that, is, jo- that, is, becoming, that is becoming a consistent answer. Okay. <laughs> That's not a joke. Yeah. I just don't think I could do it. Yeah. If I didn't have, if I had to give up, I just don't know what I would do. Like black coffee, coffee. espresso coffee, just any, any, any kind coffee. Of coffee. <laughs> no, sh- not sugary coffee, Yeah, but coffee. Yeah. Okay. Strong coffee. How do you deal with, this is the second question, how do you deal with the constant ups and downs and the emotional turmoil <laughs> that is the writing life? Ask my husband. <laughs> How do I deal with it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's the same as any part of life has ups and downs, right? So I, 
I don't think I'm very good at that actually personally. Breathing exercises, <laughs> meditation, ex- oh, exercise. Yeah. That could be my answer. Exercise is great. Yeah. I think it's actually, I couldn't sit still if I didn't get to run around a lot, you know, at the rest of the, the day. I think that that's whatever mood you're in, you can burn it off. You can burn through it. So I don't think I have a good answer to this question, actually. How do I deal? With, what do other people say? Um, <laughs> there's been a variety of answers. I mean, some have, some have said just weathering it. Some people have said, I give myself a specific number of days to wallow and then I get back on the horse. You know, yeah. there's, there's been all sorts of interesting answers. So you just have to do your work, right? Keep look down, keep your head down, right. do your work. I think yeah. that's all. I mean, yeah. Okay. Last question. And I'm sure you get this question a lot and we've kind of touched on it, but if you could give any one piece of advice to a new writer or someone who thinks they want to write, someone just getting started, what would that be? Read as much as you can. Hmm. The books books will teach you everything you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. That is as good of a good of a way to end as anything. <laughs> Deborah, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you again to Deborah for this interview and for her time. Like always, please take a moment to rate, subscribe, and share our podcast on iTunes. Also connect with us on our social platforms. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm your host, Brian, and I want to thank you, dear listener. I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.